The Bob Murphy Show, episode 261. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show Before we dive into the main issue today, I want to first make a distinction because this is happening a lot on Twitter lately and I can't tell if you folks are just trolling me because it's funny to see the old man get all worked up or if you're being serious. But either way, let me just go ahead and say it for the record. So specifically what I'm talking about is I will complain that, hey, even though we libertarian types or Austrians believe in such and such. And, you know, I don't got a problem with that. Or in some cases, maybe I do, depending on the issue. But this is a bad argument for that. So let's stop making that argument. Or let's be careful in the future. Maybe say the argument this way, be more persuasive, that sort of thing. And people, quote, on my side of the issue, get upset with me that I'm even talking like that. And I notice it the most when it comes to the so-called school choice issue. And even calling it school choice, I think, is very loaded. You know, you wouldn't, as a standard libertarian free market person, if you called food stamps protein choice or something like that, you could see why that would be loaded. But in any event, it happened recently where some philosophy professor that's libertarian, he had a tweet and said something like, issues where we trust parents' competence. And it was for what they do for their children, something like that. And it was picking restaurants, picking places of worship, picking siblings, and some other things like that, picking a babysitter. And then I said, so why wouldn't we also trust parents to pick which school their kid goes to? Hashtag vouchers now or whatever. I mean, it wasn't hashtag vouchers now, but it was, this was supposed to be a tweet in favor of the state sending vouchers to parents who want to put their kids in private schools. Okay. And so then I said, hey, everybody, I retweeted that and said, hey, folks, I think I actually said you people, I know you really hate the government, but even so, there's a lot of rhetoric coming out of the so-called school choice movement that's nonsense. I could just as well say, hey, we trust parents to decide whether their kid should ride in the family station wagon. So how come parents don't get to decide if their kid should be able to ride around in the local fire department truck? And people weren't happy with that. They were explaining to me that fire engines are not the same thing as a classroom, which was news to me because I learned the timetables on top of a really long ladder and various things like that. A bunch of people just went, huh? Like they didn't get what my point was. A lot of people pointed out and told me that my argument was dumb, that just because parents could put kids in a family station wagon, it didn't imply that they could go down to the fire station and say, I want my kid to ride around in the engine next Thursday, make it happen. So they were explaining to me that my effort to demonstrate that this other guy's argument was bad by showing what I thought was an analogously bad argument 
was silly because what I had said was a bad argument. So I said, you know what? It's too complicated. Let me just try something easier. And I had a poll and I said, hey, folks, is this a good argument? And the argument was the sun is hot. Therefore, parents should have school choice. And a majority of my followers said, yes, that is a good argument. And then a couple of days later, I said, I can't help myself. I need to see is the following a good argument? Capitalism comes before socialism in the dictionary. Therefore, capitalism is a better economic system. In the beginning, first few hours, yes, that is a good argument, was winning slightly. And then as of the last time I checked, they were neck and neck. It was like a 0.5 percentage point difference one way or the other with no having a slight edge. So for the record, again, I understand it might be some people are just trolling me like they understand this point I'm making and they just like to get a rise out of me. I can't tell at this point. But in any event, there's a difference between an argument having a true conclusion and being a valid argument. Okay. And so to say capitalism comes before socialism in the dictionary, therefore capitalism must be a better system. That is a bad argument, even though I agree capitalism is a better system than socialism. And one way to demonstrate that quickly to someone who is, well, no, but I mean, it does come before it in the alphabet. So as I could say, Marx comes before Rothbard in the dictionary. So do you think Marx is better than Rothbard? And then at that point, what you don't want to say is, that's silly, Bob. Marx is a person. We were talking about capitalism. That would miss the point if you talk like that. And yet that's how a lot of you act. Okay, let's move on to better things. What we're going to talk about today is Christianity. I had a listener email me and he said that he's been thinking, I won't give too much of the, there's a personal angle here as to why this is relevant to him besides the fate of his soul. That's always important to people. But he didn't want me to use his name. He said it was okay if I read some of his questions for me verbatim, but he didn't want me to use his name. But I think maybe that also means maybe I shouldn't say even paraphrasing what the background was in case people who know him might then figure out who he is. I, I don't know. I will not mention that kind of stuff. But what he did say is he was curious in my answers because he knows I'm a Bible-believing Christian, which is true, but he also likes how my mind works or thinks I'm rational, something like that. So he's curious to see how do you, as someone that I respected in terms of libertarian theory and economics, how do you handle some of these things? Because he's, I think, the spirit is willing, but the mind is raising roadblocks for him and he just wants to make sure what he's doing is makes sense. So with that context, let's go ahead and dive into this. What's going to happen, just so you folks can pace yourself, is I think, let me read his first question, and then I'm going to give a sort of long answer, because once you know my framework, then the rest of his questions, I can bang out pretty easily. I think that will make the most sense. For example, one of the things he asks is, if the concept is that God created all the order that we see in nature, the laws of physics, biology, chemistry, etc., that when Christians pray for an outcome, many times a positive result implies that God is overriding those laws. For example, if I get on an airplane that, unbeknownst to me, has a devastating fault in the fuel mechanism and I pray for a safe journey, then if the flight turns out to be uneventful, that implies that God overrode the fault, the laws of physics, which in any other day would have shut down three of the four engines. Is that how we should think about it? Similarly with prayers to heal seemingly unhealable illness. So I'm just doing that just to give you a flavor for the kinds of questions that he's asking me. So let me now take some time to explain what my view is of these weighty matters. And then it should be pretty straightforward to 
bang out answers to his specific questions. Okay, and, I, and I've said this before, but it's been scattered around. Like I said some of these things on my blog way back in the day before this podcast existed. And I may have just quickly here and there said the kind of thing I'm going to give you guys right now on the podcast, or maybe even said it like on somebody else's podcast. I can't remember. And it's important stuff. So it's fine if there's some repetition involved. All right. So here's how I think about this, that when we ask, do miracles happen? There's two ways of looking at it. All right. So if what miracle means is that the laws of nature are violated, then I would say, no, miracles don't happen. By definition, the laws of nature cannot be violated. All right. So there's a common understanding. I think even C.S. Lewis lays this out in his book, I believe it's called On Miracles, where he says, I'm paraphrasing, but there's this natural order, like the default is how things normally work. But then when a miracle occurs, it's because of due to a special intervention by God to temporarily suspend the operation of those rules. And that's how we know a miracle occurred. And yes, that does happen. Certainly happened in the past. And I think Lewis is open to it happening going forward. So stuff like Jesus walking on water and turning a few loaves and fishes into enough to feed 5,000 people, that sort of thing, coming back from the dead. Miracles. Okay. But I'm going to disagree with Lewis on that because I think he's misunderstanding what the quote laws of physics are. And so here it's actually my familiarity with physics that allows me to say this comfortably that when we speak of the laws of nature, the laws of physics, what can that mean except rules that accurately describe the operation of the material world? Or if you, you want to talk about forces that are not material, you can do that too. So it's broader than that. But in terms of what is the subject matter of physics, things we can observe with our senses, let's say, and then other things that may be unobservable that we invoke in order to help explain predictions involving those observables, the empirical world, the laws of physics, what does that mean? It means rules that govern that behavior. And so I want to say, by definition, if an event occurs where the atoms, the quarks, whatever level of analysis you want to employ, don't behave according to what we thought the so-called laws of physics were, the answer is not to say, oh, there was a miracle right there. The answer is to say, those must not have been the laws after all. They were good rules of thumb. They were true in most circumstances, but here were some exceptions, right? So you would not be a good scientist. You wouldn't be a good physicist if you said Newtonian mechanics really does describe the operation of the solar system, except when you go and look at the wobble in Mercury's orbit, that's because there's a miracle that happens. If you don't know that there's Einstein's general relativity gave slightly different predictions for what Mercury's orbit would look like. It's not just that that would be wrong. It's that that's not scientific. You would just say, no, if Newton's equations don't let us perfectly predict what we're going to see when we look up at the night sky, we wouldn't say, oh, it's really correct and miracles happen occasionally. That's not what we would say. That would be unscientific. We would just say, no, Newton's so-called laws actually aren't laws. Okay, so likewise, if we're saying that, oh, if we took samples from Jesus' body after the crucifixion when he's lying in the tomb, and we went and took some samples and put it under a microscope, 
And then all of a sudden his cells started regenerating in ways that quote, violated the laws of physics and biology. The way I would handle that is to say the laws in physics and biology were actually more complex or at least different from, maybe complex isn't the word, were different from what we thought. Because whatever Jesus' cells looked like at T1 on Saturday morning, and then what they looked like at T2 on Sunday morning, going from one to the other, like the laws have to allow for that possibility, that transformation. Okay, so again, if we're going to have a materialist, secular framework of explaining the operation of the, quote, laws of nature, it's not that you leave the possibility for God to come in occasionally and do something. So the atheist scientists who write in terms of like in the intelligent design debate or whatever, they're somewhat correct. All right, so not fully. So it's, we're getting into real complex areas here and I want to tread carefully, partly because I don't want to contradict something I wrote five years ago in the ID debate. But I'm saying when you just write out what the laws of nature are, it doesn't make sense to have an asterisk and say, unless God intervenes, in which case this isn't the rule anymore. No, what you would want to do is write laws that were robust enough to handle every possible thing that actually would happen. And so if the cells that were in Jesus' body could go from being dead to alive, then your laws of biology need to be able to account for that. Okay. So there's that angle or that, that aspect of my worldview. But on the other hand, if you say to me, so Bob, so miracles don't exist? I would say, no, miracles do exist. For example, we talk about the miracle of life. I don't think they renamed it, but even now with as crazy and quote woke as they are in the medical system in the United States, you're still okay. You know, referring to the miracle of life, if you're, especially if you're newly expecting parents, I'll have you watch videos and stuff explaining with the development of the baby. They even call it a baby, not just a, an embryo and a fetus, right? Might even call it a baby. So yeah, every time a new life grows inside a mother and is born and then, oh, that's what another new person just entered the scene. That is a miracle. I have no problem using that term. It happens a lot. And that's why we're kind of take it for granted. Joe Rogan has a hilarious bit where he, I'm not going to do it justice, but he said something like, if there were just one female on earth from whom all the babies came, she would be regarded as this demigoddess. She'd be like the queen ant or something, queen bee. <laughs> and can you imagine if just all the new human beings just came from one lady? I mean, for one thing, she'd probably be pretty miserable. But can you imagine how exalted she would be and like all of our art and literature would just extol her virtues and sing praises to her? But since lots of women give birth all the time, we don't, we don't yeah, so what? It's like breathing and digesting. Who cares? It's, quote, natural. But it's amazing. It's miraculous. All right. And likewise, I do believe that there was a guy 2,000 years ago walked around healing people of their sicknesses, things that should have been untreatable. And in some cases, you know, how would I explain it? I think if you want to call it psychosomatic, I don't have a problem with that. I had a thing once in grad school where I was really stressed out and anxious and my skin was like flaking off, like the skin that connected my nose to my, what is that, cheek? Like that little crevice in there, like the skin was just actively falling off. Like that's how stressed out I was about stuff. 
And I had this epiphany and I realized some of these issues I had been grappling with, I was just looking at them wrong and I literally just felt relief wash through me. I felt all the anxiety just flow out. My friend, incidentally, who is not religious, said at the time, oh yeah, your demons left you, which, you know, that was a very interesting turn of phrase that he used. And boom, my skin problems disappeared. I had been going to dermatologists and they had been giving me stuff that wasn't working. And boom, I just knew, no, my skin's going to be fine now. And it was. Okay. And so then that's actually, there was that episode that started me down the paths. And that's why I thought, oh, so I bet you there really was this guy, Jesus, who truly did believe he was the son of God. At the time I was still an atheist. So I thought he was just delusional, but I realized, wow, if you were grappling with stuff and then you really thought, you know, so if you thought you were, you know, your parents were sinful or you thought you did something sinful and you were grappling and you had leprosy and you thought God was punishing you because of something you or your parents had done. And then this guy comes up that you genuinely believe was the Messiah because you'd heard rumors about things he'd done in neighboring villages. And he comes up and says, do you want to be healed? And you say, yeah. And then he says, your sins are forgiven you. You're healed. I could understand how, yeah, your skin would clear up. All right. So I'm just saying it was this personal experience that I had that opened my mind to the people, you know, say the mind-body connection. Remember, I thought that was all new age hokey stuff before that experience that I had in grad school. Okay, so yes, I do believe this guy Jesus went around healing people and that I don't have a problem calling those miraculous healings. And I think he predicted his death. He was murdered and then came back from the dead. So I would say, yeah, I have no problem calling those things miracles. They are miracles. But my quibble is I would not say any of those episodes violated the laws of physics. I would just say the laws of physics aren't what we think, if that's true. Actually, what I would say is there's nothing wrong with quantum mechanics and general relativity that those equations can handle or those systems can actually handle the particular outcomes or events that happened 2,000 years ago. So I think it's actually more impressive if God is able to come up with a few simple rules that govern the behavior of the constituent elements of matter and energy. And yet at the macro level, or let's say intermediate, I don't know what you want to call it, like the everyday level of human society, things can happen that seem, quote, miraculous. Even though if you drill down, the atoms in Jesus' body wouldn't be doing anything unusual looking at that scale. But you pull back and you're like, whoa, there was a corpse here that all of a sudden is animated. What's going on? So that's my view. And it, it actually, it doesn't detract from God's grandeur. It actually is more impressive. I've used the analogy. It's like Shakespeare writing something in iambic pentameter, right? That not only does he tell a cool story that comes down through the ages and people are going to be talking about Shakespeare well into the future, but there's rules and the pattern of the words that he used. So it's just more impressive that he was able to do that with these constraints. So likewise to me, it doesn't limit the majesty of God to say, oh, no, you can't violate, you know, God doesn't violate the laws of physics. Like I said, for one thing, like that's misunderstanding what the laws of physics are. Whatever God wants to do is going to happen. And then we ex post try to put labels on it or, or fit a system to it to characterize the patterns that we see or to come up with patterns that we see and codify them. Right. So it doesn't make sense to say the Oh, do you think God can violate the laws of physics? That's just, that's a nonsense way of looking at it. That would be like saying, um, could Rothbard write an essay that wasn't Rothbardian or something? Like, I, I'm, 
I don't know if that's getting across what I'm trying to say, but it's a category error to say, could God violate the laws of physics? All right. So that's my understanding of how that works now. Here's what gets really tricky. What about free will? How do I fit that into my framework? Okay. So here, let me start with the analogy and then I'll try to just say what my view is. So here's the analogy. Suppose you go to a movie theater and you're sitting in the theater and then you look up and then, you know, there's a movie going on and you look up and there's this bright fluorescent dot or, you know, ball that's like in the top left of the screen when you notice it and you're looking at it and then you start moving your eyes and the dots moving around. And at first you're not sure. You just assume that the dots kind of moving around and you, you think maybe somebody in the theater has like a laser pointer or something and you're just following this dot around. But then after a while you, you realize, no, it's not that your eyes are tracking the dot. It's that the dot is tracking your eyes, right? So you're looking and then you just said, I'm going to look to the lower left of the screen and the dot follows where your eyes move. And you just keep moving your eyes all around the screen, the, you know, the big movie screen projector or you know, on the screen upon which it's being projected. And this dot is just perfectly moving in unison with your line of sight. So it starts freaking you out after a while. And you're wondering, how is this possible? There must be somebody in the theater, some like some kind of device that's like trained on my eyes and like calculates based on my eye movements where I must be looking. And then the projector besides just putting up the movie is sending the whatever it is, a laser or something to make this dot go to where my eyes happen to be looking at that moment. And it's kind of like I say, it's kind of freaking you out. But that's your best hypothesis as to what's going on because clearly after you're doing this for a good five minutes and it's just flawless, that wherever you look, there the dot moves on the screen, you're going to be absolutely convinced that you're controlling the dot. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, right? It has to be that they can't possibly be random. And you're clearly, you know, you sometimes you'll stare for a while and then you'll say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to look at the top left at three, two, one, boom, you look and the dots moves with your eyes. And then you wait different amounts of time and you, you're just trying all kinds of tricks. You close your left eye, you close your right eye and the dot is always wherever the other eye is still looking. I mean, it's just, it's freaky, right? So like I said, after not even that long, it wouldn't even take five minutes. It'd probably take about 30 seconds. But certainly by the five minute mark, you doing this, you're not even paying attention to the movie. You're just be wondering what the heck is going on with this dot that's following my eyes, my eye and the line of sight around. Okay. So I think we can all agree you would be certain that you were controlling with your free will where that dot was moving. And the issue was just how is it technologically that they are able to broadcast that thing? Because you know, it's not literally you know enough about the mechanics of it. It's not literally that your eye is like shooting a laser out that's bouncing off and coming back or something. You know that somebody else is projecting the laser to make that dot. But the issue is how do they know where to point it? And they must be scanning your eyes or something, right? So now what happens if you do some research, you know, the show lets out, then you're freaked out. You go do some research and it turns out that the people who made that movie, so for one thing, there's no scanning device. There's nothing in the theater tracking your eyeballs. It's just a regular movie, just like anything else that was playing that day. But what happened is the people who made that movie, somehow they perfectly predicted where you were going to sit and where you were going to be looking at every second of that film. And they made the dot appear in that spot 
on the screen accordingly. So to you, it looked like free will. It looked like you were controlling the movement of the dot, but really, nope, the position of that dot on the screen was determined from the outset according to the standard laws of operation for how that film projector worked. Okay, so the reason in practice you wouldn't believe that is because you would think, how could they possibly have predicted that? How could they have known that with such precision? But nonetheless, imagine that's what happened. All right, so if you get that analogy, that's how I try to reconcile the, quote, laws of nature with free will. That we have souls, and this gets complicated, and I don't pretend that I have a full understanding of this by any stretch. Obviously, it's probably one of the deepest questions humanity faces. And so there's a sense in which we are observing this world and it sure looks like we have a lot of influence over at least a subset of what happens in this world, all right? That people say, oh, you, you know, all this, this woo-woo stuff about, oh, I can control matter with my mind, ha-ha, whatever. No, we control matter with our mind all the time. When you go to pick up a glass, your thoughts, man, are causing matter to be set in motion. It's so crazy. Yeah, when you move your arm and wrap your fingers around a glass, you're controlling the world with your mind. Whoa. But we, again, we just take that for granted because we, everybody does that. That's nothing. Whereas if you used your mind to make a, an ashtray across the room levitate off the table, people would think you were doing some kind of trick. They wouldn't believe it. But yet, if I, quote, use my mind to make my fingers contract, that doesn't seem like a big deal. And again, I understand why. Because, well, we, we, it's the electrical impulses. And but still, okay, how come those electrical impulses in your nervous system seem to fire right when you, quote, choose to pick up the glass. So there still is this, some would just call it an illusion, that you are controlling at least a subset of the material universe. And yet we still think there's laws of nature going on behind there. So that's my reconciliation of it. And I know some people try to get into quantum uncertainty and say that's where, but even there, I don't think that fixes the problem. I mean, maybe that has something to do with it, but fundamentally, I don't think it does. That if it turns out that, oh, you get to a small enough microscopic level and it's a coin flip to decide whether the electron's going to be in this state or that state, then you're not really in control of it. That doesn't explain, for one thing, you still don't know, well, where is your consciousness? What, how is that influencing what happens? So again, my view is it's analogous to that theater situation where God designed the universe the so-called laws of nature. And so he knew, and he's like outside of time, incidentally. That's how you answer some of these other paradoxes. It's not that God is going through in time in the universe. It's like to him, it's like a comic strip where he sees the whole timeline at one fell swoop from his perspective. But for us moving through time, it seems like things are changing and that the universe is getting older and whatever. All right. So he knew everything that was going to happen I don't want to say beforehand, because that implies that it was earlier, outside hand, and knew all along the way what choices you were going to make. And so the laws of nature are such, and the initial conditions of the universe and blah, 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 are such that your hand moves, even though all the molecules and atoms in your hand are just obeying blindly the laws of physics. But to you as an observer, it seems like you're controlling it, even though you're actually not directly. The way you control it is because the designer 
picked the initial conditions and the rules of motion and such that you watching the unfolding of this thing would think you were in control. So notice, it's not completely vacuous. Just like going back to the movie theater, where in case you just blew through that analogy, I actually think it's pretty deep. Because you can say, were you controlling the ball on the screen? Yes and no. So in terms of direct mechanics, no. But in a bigger sense, you did. Because again, the people by stipulation in that thought experiment predicted where you would be looking and then made sure the ball was always going to be there. So there is a sense in which you did have some influence on where that ball was going to be, even though it was not through a mechanism that you fully understood at the time. And it wasn't a direct causal relationship. It was more subtle going through the desires of the creator. All right. So that's how I try to reconcile free will in a framework where God is sovereign and the material universe does seem to follow a simple set of rules. Okay. So now to answer this guy's, again, his question about I'm getting on a plane and I'm praying, please don't let us crash. Please don't let us crash. Oh, wow. God, please don't let us crash. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. And C.S. Lewis talks about this too. I believe in miracles where you hear that your uncle was in a car accident and then you say a prayer, please let him be okay. Let him get through this. If he does or not, like, does that mean the world was going one way and then God intervened and changed. And also too, besides him doing that, it seems kind of weird. Like why would people's prayers have something to do with the direction of the universe? That seems kind of weird. And the way C.S. Lewis handled it, he said, well, no, it's not that the person was dead and then your prayer brought him back to life. It was that God knew before you were even born that, oh yeah, when you were 46, you were going to say that prayer for your uncle who was in a car accident. So God saw that coming. So if he wanted your prayer to influence something, he would have baked that into the cake, you know, at the Big Bang or whatever. I don't know if C.S. Lewis believed in the Big Bang. Okay, so it's not that you are causing miracles to occur in the sense of violations of the laws of nature, but it is possible that your desires or preferences do influence things. Okay, so now that's interesting. Okay, so, so let me just finish training that. So with the plane thing, to say, you know, could there be a miracle in which you'd say, oh man, I should have died. That something happened, we land, I get out and I see some guy's luggage that the people loading the plane, they forgot to put in properly and it was hanging outside and then it got sucked into the engine and it was this freak thing where the engine should have failed, but for some reason that guy's, the handle from his luggage got lodged in a certain thing and that actually kept the panel on when it should have flown off and brrr, just a freak thing. We all should have been dead. We didn't. This is a miracle. And the person who prayed is going to see that. And when he hears it reported in the, in the newspaper, is going to think my prayer just saved us all. And that person's going to stop drinking, stop going to the strip club and go on and found 16 orphanages because of that miracle. Right? So what I'm saying is nothing in my view, nothing that happened that day would have violated the laws of physics. And that was going to happen the whole time, right? That if you could predict, if you had a powerful enough computer, if, here I'm running issues too, because the current understanding is that the material universe is not deterministic, at least not at a, in a micro level. So I don't want to brush up against that, but I'm not even taking a stand on that question. I think it's possible that's just due to our faulty understanding. But in any event, suppose that the universe is deterministic, then it's fine. Like to say before that guy was even born, the way the universe was moving, 
it was going to happen, that he would be born, live his life, get to be 46 years old, be on that plane, say the prayer, that luggage, the handle gets lodged and the thing holds the panel on, the engine doesn't fail, they don't die. That that was just coming, that was baked into the cake all along. And yet that guy clearly would have thought his prayer did it. Now, you say, okay, so that's how you reconcile stuff, Bob, because God anticipates everybody's choices. And notice too, it's a very interesting, it's almost like trying to find an equilibrium in an economics model. Because it's not just what do people choose to do, but you have to realize, given what everybody else is choosing, and then whatever God chooses to make things happen, in other words, you kind of have to know what would they choose to do under all these possible scenarios. And then we just see, quote, the equilibrium path or the outcome. But in order to first construct what is the timeline that I want to see happen, if I'm the creator God, it's not enough just to know what would people choose under these various circumstances. Like you need to know if things went a different way, how would people react in that scenario? So you have to have like, like the, just the, the computational complexity of this is... You can't even conceive of it. All right. So theologically, yes, there's free will. That's how you explain the existence of evil. Here we go. So let me touch a little bit on the existence of evil because this actually, this person writing this email didn't ask me that, but somebody in the MeWe group did. So there, I'm not going to get too deep into this one just because it's such a big problem. But in terms of like, what do I do with that in my framework? So there is a sense in which, yes, God gives us free will. That's how evil can occur. All right, so God doesn't cause evil, but there is a sense in which he allows it to exist. And what he does, though, being God, being good, is he takes evil and he turns it for good. All right, and so in the Bible, famously, Joseph, who's betrayed by his brothers, so Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, so Joseph is one of the younger ones and he's boastful and he comes and tells his brother, oh, I had this dream and you were all bowing down to me and, <laughs> and they can't stand him. And so they, first they're going to kill him. And actually some of his brothers want to, especially the older one wants to save him and it's, but he, like, he's afraid to stand up to the other brothers. And so anyway, they said, well, instead of killing him, let's just sell him off into slavery and then we'll get some money too and we'll get rid of this annoying kid. And so that's what they do. and then. He goes to Egypt and he ends up working for the Pharaoh and he predicts that there's going to be years of famine. And so the Pharaoh accumulates during the there's seven years of good harvest and then seven years of famine. So during the good years, they stockpile. And so then during the famine, the Pharaoh's just doing quite well for himself. But it's good because if he hadn't stockpiled, then more people would have died. And so then Joseph's brothers come hat in hand to get some of the food. And that's when Joseph reveals himself and they're not feeling too proud at that point, too happy with their life decisions. And he says, don't worry, you know, what you intended for evil, God used for good. All right. In other words, it's good that I ended up here. If I had just stayed with you guys, with dad, we would all be starving to death. So it's good that I came here. God, so it's not that them selling their brother into slavery was, quote, a good thing, like that was still evil, but God used that. He redeemed the situation. The best example of this, God sends his only son to earth. God becomes man. Jesus walks around healing people, teaching them amazing things. And what do we do? We plot and connive and murder him, torture him, and then murder him. So in terms of 
victory for Satan, Satan would think, oh, that's it. Me driving a wedge between God and man. I got them. I tricked them into killing God's only son. I even got the religious leaders to do it, to think they were serving God by murdering his son. That's a pretty good trick. Score one for Satan, right? Oh, you got me there, Bob. That's one for you. That's Norm MacDonald one. One of his bits where this guy's pretend to be Satan and telling God to kill his family, but it turns out to be his friend, Bob. Okay, so you would think, but then God uses that. Instead of that being the worst calamity that spells the destruction of the human race or the end, that's actually our salvation. And that's what, you know, like Christians, what, what the symbol is the crucifix. And we talk about Christmas is not the best day in the Christian calendar. It's Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, conquered death. And so God used the occasion of us at our worst, murdering his son to reconcile God and man and forever defeat Satan. All right. So that's how God works. You know, so here again, how do you apply that in specific things? It's tricky. And, I, and you don't want to sound somebody's got cancer or their kid dies or something. You know, I said, well, don't worry. If you have faith, you'll just know God's going to use that. So yeah, some Christians come off as unbelievably callous or whatever, or worse yet, they make it look like, oh, if you're still sick, it's because you, you don't have enough faith. When there's explicitly people like say to Jesus at one time, you know, whose sin was it? Their parents or them that are this reason for them being in this condition. And he says, no, it wasn't anybody's sin. This is, you know, to allow for the glory of God and he heals them. All right. So Christians can abuse this concept, but I do think it's correct. And I'll bite the bullet on this. Like, I mean this quite literally. Like, I think when we die and go to heaven, you will understand why God let the Holocaust happen. That you will say, oh, that's amazing. Right? It's not that God caused all those people to die, but he allowed it to happen. But then you will understand why. So I'm not saying I understand why, but I am confident that you will understand why. It's not because God didn't think through the consequences. It's not that you're better than him. And you can tell, oh, this kid that I know that died from cancer when he was eight years old, that's awful. No good God would let that happen. It's not that you cared about that kid more than God did. And it's not that he just was busy and didn't realize that happened. Okay, so again, I'm talking to kids' parents. I'm not going to say some stupid truism to them when that just happened. But I'm saying, theologically, that is my view. And that even those parents, when they die, they will understand why he allowed that to happen. And they will be in enthusiastic agreement that he did the right thing. At that time, they'll see it and understand why. The kid will understand why. Okay, prayer request. If I understand Christianity correctly, if you pray for something and it doesn't eventuate, then the explanation is not that prayer doesn't work, but that God said no because he has a plan to which we're not privy, which involves an outcome other than the one for which you prayed. However, to the outside observer, that is indistinguishable from God not interfering in the world. Is the idea of prayer then more about encouraging a direct dialogue with God rather than getting the outcomes that you want? If so, then couldn't one have a direct dialogue that involves love and gratitude but not requests? In other words, why request part of Christian prayer if you will often be rejected? Okay, yeah. So here, and a lot of this stuff is psychological. Okay, so just like as a secular agnostic psychologist or something, you could have a client who's grappling with a lot of issues. And a lot of times you could say something like, hey, what are you afraid is going to happen in this situation? Like, he wants to ask for a raise from their boss or something. And, well, you know, I guess he might say that I'm crazy. He'd say, we'll just say that out loud. Like, what's the worst that can happen? What are you afraid of? And like the person says the thing out loud 
And just doing that actually helps. And like once they've crystallized what the issue is, now they can face their fears. Or what's the worst that can happen? Okay, all right. And then, you know what? You're right. I'm going to go in there on Monday morning and ask for a raise. Okay, so I'm being a little bit goofy, but that's a real thing, right? When you're in counseling or whatever, that a lot of times just saying something out loud that you've been grappling with really helps. It kind of puts a box around it. Now it's manageable because you've named it. And so I'm saying, I think a lot of the stuff that goes on with prayer, it has those psychological benefits. And so, right, theologically, it's not correct, I don't think, to say, oh, wow, I prayed for so-and-so's blood pressure to come down, and it did. And so there's a sense in which God was perfectly happy to let that person suffer, but then the guy over here prayed, and then God said, oh, okay, I won't. Like, it's a tricky thing. So I think that's too simplistic of a way to look at it. Even having said that though, I mean, are you okay with God wanting you to help widows and orphans? Right? You know, you're walking down the street and you see somebody on the ground with a broken leg. Do you think it's okay for you to say, God wants me to pick the guy up and drive him to the hospital so he can get his leg fixed? And if so, well, gee, doesn't that mean God was perfectly happy to let that guy sit there with his broken leg unless some Christian happened to come upon him and take him to the hospital? Kind of a sick God does that, right? So when it comes to physically helping people, it doesn't seem so weird. And yet it does seem a little bit strange and like makes God not look as good for some reason to say, oh, it's possible that if you pray for someone's healing, then they'll get healed. All right. So again, these are complex matters. So I don't want to rule things out. I would just point out that there, it's very therapeutic too. Like if people are praying for someone, like when you meditate, for example, there's lots of things. My wife took a class on this stuff. There's lots of actual peer-reviewed published articles showing that if you engage in loving kindness meditation, that has positive benefits on your life, right? Where you just periodically just take a moment, you calm down and you just think about somebody and you just let sort of abstract feelings of gratitude and goodwill emanate from you towards other people, either specified or unspecified. And that makes you live longer. And if they scan your brain, your brain looks younger than it is, that kind of thing, right? And there's more and more literature showing this stuff in a non-woo-woo way. Like this is objective science. So none of this is to say, oh, God isn't real. And this is all just ways of backdooring in some of these tangible benefits. I'm saying he is real, but it's not surprising that he would want you to talk to him and that that would be helpful for you. And that, yeah, if you're really worried about your, it's good for you to pray for people, partly for you, like to get your priorities right and to inculcate in you concern and compassion for others, right? So that's a good thing in and of itself. Okay, how about this one? Trusting God with your life. We'll end on this. I hear a lot that Christianity requires that we fully embrace God and, quote, put our lives in his hands. That raises two questions. First, it seems to imply a master plan, but that seems to contradict the notion of free will. Second, why even do anything in life? Why get out of bed in the morning if God is taking care of your life and needs? Okay, so actually, he has one other question that I'll answer to. So on this one, right, you put your life in God's hands, not because that changes any, like it doesn't change his sovereignty. If you want something to happen, it's going to happen. But it's for your own benefit. It's for you. I've used this analogy before. I think it's a good one. So if you read the Harry Potter novels, and I'm just saying it because people scoff. They're like, hey, there's other books besides that. But yeah, but these books are awesome. If you haven't read them, they're really good. 
the first couple, you won't get into it, but by like book five, it's amazing. And what happens in these things is you as the reader know things are going to be okay. Like bad stuff happens. It's realistic. But you know good is going to win. And you know Harry is the hero. You know Harry's not going to die in book five. I hope I'm not spoiling it for you folks. But yet Harry is always worried about stuff. He's a typical kid in school. He's worried about, you know, what girl's going to go with him to the dance. He's worried about getting his homework done on time. He's worried about this professor that hates his guts. And, you know, there's a bad wizard who's coming back from the dead that killed his parents. You know, typical stuff kids worry about. But we as the reader just know that, no, J.K. Rowling, she's good. She loves Harry. You can tell. And she's telling a story to teach us lessons, to educate us. And you know Harry's going to be fine. Bad stuff's going to happen, but you know it's going to be okay. And that Harry doesn't need to have such anxiety and stress if he would just relax and just naturally let him meet his destiny, the plan that his creator has for him. It's going to be great. He's going to do great things. All right. So, likewise, what's going to happen is going to happen. You still have free will, but if God wants you to go deliver his message to Nineveh, it's going to happen. Free will doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want, right? Nobody thinks free will means you can just snap your fingers and be standing on Jupiter, right? And so there are constraints to free will anyway. And so God, by still allowing you to have free will, can still make happen what he wants to happen. That's why you can't thwart his plan. And it's a good thing you can't because his plan is better than yours. But Instead of just being full of anxiety and fear, if you put your life in his hands, it's for your benefit. You can relax and know that the entire structure of the universe from before you were born, from before the, the solar system existed, was designed by a benevolent being who loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Okay, finally, he asks about Genesis. If the Bible is to be taken literally, where it purports to be a historical account, then how do we square the creation narrative where man appears on the seventh day with the current scientific evidence that aspects of the physical world have been around for millions of years, but men has been around for much shorter? Okay, so here, it's okay with me if the universe is, whatever, 20 billion years old, or the solar system is 4 billion years old. That doesn't bother me theologically. It's not that my view of the Bible or Christianity is dependent on that. I am very open to the idea, however, that human scientists are very wrong in their dating of the age of the earth. So for one thing, in terms of the Genesis account and saying on the first day God did this, and the second day, da, 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 well, it occurs to me that to the extent that someone wrote that down, they weren't there. They were either told that or someone had a vision or something to see that, right? In other words, even Adam and Eve didn't know what happened on the second day because they weren't alive yet. They didn't observe it is what I'm saying. So maybe God told them, but I'm saying, so let's say somebody had a vision of that stuff. If actually it took more than a day in terms of 24 hours and they just kind of saw, like, let's say something took millions of years for the first cell to emerge. Then the Holy Spirit was trying to inspire the person that would end up, whether it was Moses or somebody who then told Moses, who then wrote down the book of Genesis. Maybe the vision that popped into their head was like a movie that a documentary that kind of showed them a brief history of time. And maybe they wrote, oh, on the second day this happened. 
even though it wasn't a 24-hour day, right? I mean, it's, it'd be kind of hard for them to conceive of what they were seeing, the classified, right? So there's that kind of thing going on. But having said all that, I do want to stress human scientists are overconfident all the time. For example, I was at the planetarium with my son a couple of years back and Neil deGrasse Tyson was the narrator and he's confidently telling us, in fact, scientists now know that some 97% of the universe consists of dark matter and dark energy. No, I think that's a bug. I think those are just placeholders to mean we don't know what we're talking about. And I think in the future, cosmologists are going to revise that a lot. And yet he's confidently talking like that. So one of the things I'm going to have on this podcast going forward is my friend from Nashville, he made a documentary called Is Genesis History? And he had a bunch of PhDs in, you know, chemistry, biology, archaeology, geology on to talk about their area of expertise because they were all biblical creationists. And to say, in your field, most people with PhDs would think the universe was blah, blah, blah years old. You don't. How can that be? And then each person gives their explanation. So again, it's not that that's essential to my faith. If it turns out the earth really is 4 billion years old, that's fine with me. But I am saying there are Christian scientists, not, you know what I mean? Scientists who are Christian, not Christian scientists, you get what I'm saying? Who can sit there and, you know, they went to school, they know what the standard theory are and they can say, yeah, here's what happened. Look, for example, one of the things is, oh, well, there was a great flood. And then that's why we see these sediments and blah, blah, blah. And standard geologists looking at this assume it was because of very slow processes. And with their model, yeah, it would take 200 million years for this thing to develop. But if there was a great flood, then maybe it would happen in only 20 years. Yeah, that kind of stuff. All right. I will stop there. I want to thank the listener who sent me that email and the people of the MeWe group who chimed in, gave me some other things to talk about. Wish him the best and continue on his journey of discovery. And for all of you, I hope you pursue these questions if they interest you, because these topics are far more important than the non-aggression principle or fractional reserve banking, believe it or not. Hey everyone, thanks. I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.